This is Christy, and we have merchandise. Go to howtolovelitpodcast.com and check out amazing t-shirts, mugs, stickers. If you love great quotes, we have some of our favorites. If you love silliness, check out our mascot, Brain Man. Go to howtolovelitpodcast.com, clip on the shop button, and find something for that person who needs to be reminded that we are fashioned creatures but half made up. Mary Shelley said that. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Schreiber, and we're here to discuss books that have changed the world and have changed us. And I'm Gary Shriver, and this is the How to Love Lit podcast. This is our second episode discussing the poet, essayist, thinker, motivational speaker, Ralph Waldo Emerson, the father of the movement called American Transcendentalism, which is slightly different than uh, transcendental movements from other parts of the world. Christy, um, American transcendentalism uh, as a literary movement was so impactful socially that we studied in history. Um, it affected major shifts in American culture and it sparked social movements, some of which led to repercussions that were felt in places as far away as India and South Africa. Well, it was a unique moment. I mean, the movement in the grand scheme of things was very small, and it had very few agreed-upon tenets. It centered around a very small town, a village 24 miles away from Boston, Massachusetts, named Concord. Concord was Ralph Waldo Emerson's hometown. Now, Emerson himself, if you recall, was from Boston, but his family came from this little town of Concord. Emerson's wife had died. He resigned from his church. He went to Europe. But when he came back, instead of moving back to Boston, he chose to move closer to his roots to live with his step-grandfather in this house right behind the North Bridge, the site of the famous battle in the Revolutionary War where the colonials beat the British. His grandfather's house looks over the famous bridge and would later be called Old Mance. Today, the house is famous. I mean, it's where Emerson wrote this first essay called Nature in 1836. Emerson offered it to Nathaniel Hawthorne as a place for he to live with his newlywed, which he did for four years before they moved to Salem, where he would go on, of course, to write the Scarlet Letter. Henry David Thoreau spent a lot of time in that old house and even planted an heirloom garden and gave it to the Hawthorns as a wedding gift. You can see it. It's been recreated, obviously, <laughs> and it's there today. Wow. That is a lot of high-class company <laughs> in one house there. Uh, so the movement that centered around this particular house? 
Well, I mean, not really. The movement was sparked to some degree by Emerson's essay, Nature, but as all movements do, it took a life of its own. Emerson was always the center. He became a celebrity. People wanted to be around him. Uh, It centered around Concord because Emerson was a charismatic speaker and writer, and he lived there. He invited interesting people to move to Concord, and they did. With his growing prosperity, though, he bought a bigger house, and you can visit that house today. He invited people to stay with him. Margaret Fuller, for example, would stay weeks at a time. Thoreau was in and out all the time because he worked for Emerson as a handyman and at one point lived on some property near a lake you may have heard of called Walden. But lots of people came to that house, smart people. They wanted to participate in discussions, conversations, something new. Several of them started this protest club back in Boston called the Transcendental Club And this group met. They would meet in people's houses. They would discuss things. And often they would meet in Concord at Emerson's house. (laughs) That sounds uh, pretty exclusive and a little secret society-ish. I mean, uh, what were these ideas and what were they protesting? Well, it was a literary and intellectual discussion group. They were anti-establishment, for sure, mostly reacting to the intellectual climate of Harvard and Cambridge. Uh, they would have assigned topics and they would discuss them. Here's one that I found that they discussed specifically at Emerson's house one time. And this is the title of their discussion. The inspiration of the prophet and bard, the nature of poetry, and the causes of sterility of poetic inspiration in our age and country. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds ambitious. I can't imagine a title like that drawing much of a crowd. I know, but it did. It would draw you know, self-professed thinkers and writers and clergymen People that were really irritated and dissatisfied with the status quo as they saw it in academia, in their churches, and they were looking, and this word comes up over and over again in the literature, for something new. They would challenge each other, encourage each other, inspire each other, and they would produce art, and they would try out new ways of life. But most importantly, they didn't just talk about problems or protest. They actually did things, and they d- did positive things. They didn't burn things. They problem-solved. They tried to build. So, uh, you know, let's get back to the ideas of transcendentalism. Uh, did they agree on certain tenets from Emerson's writings, and that's why he's kind of the leader of the pack? Yes and no. Uh, They all seem to agree that they needed to start something new, something authentic, that they needed to live authentically and treat each other in that way. This is what they agreed on. But that's very broad. For the most part, the new thing came out of an older thing, an adoption of some romantic ideas from the British guys like Keats, Coleridge, Wordsworth. But well, let me say this, like the romantics, they would look to nature for inspiration. They looked to nature for truth. Many were against industrialization, but they went farther than the romantics. Uh, This is what Emerson said about their beliefs. It is well known to most of my audience that the idealism of the present day acquired the name of transcendental from the use of that term by Immanuel Kant, Whatever belongs to the class of intuitive thought is popularly called at the present day transcendental. So um, they got some ideas from the Kantian Enlightenment philosophy of Germany, uh, you know, including the term trans, uh, transcendental. Uh, but they mixed in ideas with British Romanticism, and they sprinkled in some Eastern thinking and injected a sense of American independence. And you know, and there you go. 
a new literary <laughs> movement, American literary movement. Uh, it produced stories and poetry and novels, and perhaps most importantly for us historians, you know, some foundational essays like Civil Disobedience by Henry David Thoreau and Women in the 19th Century by Margaret Fuller. And, of course, the the ones that we're reading in this episode, and they're written in 1841, which is Self-Reliance by Emerson. Right, and the diversity of thought certainly is distinctive enough. What's, there's no specific set of beliefs. More than anything, transcendentalism ultimately was a state of mind founded on the idea that you must look inward and trust yourself. Different people took that to mean different things. Margaret Fuller edited the very popular transcendental newspaper called The Dial. Sophia and George Ripley were inspired to create a communal living experiment called Brook Farm. Wow. Well, you know, I want to point out that transcendentalism in, in Emerson in particular influenced the greatest man of his age, and this is in my estimation, my opinion, but the greatest man of the age was Abraham Lincoln. Uh, Lincoln read Emerson's work, but he also attended his lectures. And after Lincoln became president, he invited Emerson to the White House. And when they met, Lincoln mentioned to Emerson that he had attended his lectures in his early days, and he even quoted Emerson. And Lincoln said this, I once heard you say in a lecture that a Kentuckian seems to say by his air and manners, here I am. If you don't like me, the worse for you. That sounds very much like something Emerson would say, right? (laughs) Lincoln, uh, remembering this quote from all those years ago, it absolutely charmed Emerson. But uh, Emerson's admiration for Lincoln went beyond acute conversation. He uh, praised the president's strength in the face of intense pressure. And when Lincoln died, he gave a eulogy for him in Concord. Um, Lincoln lived out the ideas from self-reliance to the point that it cost him his life. And Lincoln, as he conducted the Civil War, looked inside of himself for truth and strength and never wavered from that. And, you know, here we have a social movement based solely on the premise that you should look inward for truth and inward for inspiration, inward for deciding what you want out of life. Uh, But the idea is is if you are totally focused on looking inward, really inward, the end result uh, of this soul searching is not, you know, self-orbiting narcissism like you might think, but it's a self-reliance that empowers you to not only benefit society at large, but to be a great independent leader, really, who is free from the tyranny of looking over their shoulder. And uh, I want to read a quote that isn't from self-reliance, but it illustrates how this inward focus plays out. Each man takes care that his neighbor shall not cheat him, but a day comes when he begins to care that he does not cheat his neighbor. Then all goes well. He has changed his market cart into a chariot of the sun. You know, and that seems to be the case. Uh, an individual or a group or even uh, a generation that is totally devoted to honesty and integrity and an almost divine-like uh, respect for mankind and the preservation of our planet lives very differently than the one that is trying to outsmart his neighbor or at least um, avoid being outsmarted. It's a mindset change. And I want to add the idea, too. That in reading um, Emerson's words, he has a very deep fixation on authenticity, which is kind of a newer concept for that time period. Uh, I would also like to say this too: James McPherson, the famous uh, historian, always talked about Lincoln operating out of an informed central vision, which I think comes from this Emerson point of view. 
Well, it's certainly a paradox. I mean, it doesn't seem like it, that it would be true that if you look inside of yourself, uh, you won't be like that. For the int- for the transcendentalist, looking around made you selfish. Society makes us selfish. Looking inward makes us good. Uh, you know, it does take some thinking about it. It's kind of a twist. Um, they use the term intuition, and intuition as we commonly use it means understanding something immediately without conscious reasoning. Uh, for example, we might say, I intuitively like this person, or I intuitively realized this situation was dangerous. And what we mean by saying that is that we uh, are trusting our senses to pick up on details subconsciously. That is not how Emerson used the word. Uh, the transcendentalists used the term intuition to mean an almost a disregard for reason. Uh, for the transcendentalists, we should decide what is true or not true by using our own experience instead of scientific observation or deductive reasoning or community standards or voices from the outside, uh, all of that should be checked by our own way of seeing the world, not the way our culture tells us to see the world. Um, Our own experiences, you know, experiences not interacting with others, but interacting with the natural world. And Emerson really believed uh, that we have this inner voice and we should learn to trust and follow it. And that's why he liked Lincoln, because that's exactly what Lincoln did. Well, Emerson called it listening to the voice of God. He believed and lectured all over the world that when people did that, there was a good outcome inside of themselves, and this led to the world being better, the production of art, the production of better living conditions, better respect. Well, he certainly put faith in the idea that people have goodness inside of them. And uh, before I quit talking about Lincoln, you know, going on and on, um, many have said that that line from the Gettysburg Address where Lincoln says, government of the people, by the people, for the people, uh, you know, although it references Jefferson, it also references the ideas and the values of transcendentalism because the transcendentalists understood the inclusiveness of those words, even Maybe even more than the Founding Fathers did back in their generation. Well, looking inside of every man and finding the good there, you know, that's also the primary criticism of Emerson in general, because Emerson really had no answer or refused to really make an answer for the problem of evil. Melville complained about this. Hawthorne complained about this. Henry James said this. He, talking about Emerson, has no great sense of wrong, a strangely limited one indeed for a moralist, no sense of the dark, the foul, the base. (laughs) Well, and of course, these men knew him personally, so um, I don't want to argue with them. But, uh, you know, if we look at Emerson in a historical context, it makes sense that he felt comfortable ignoring the presence of evil in the world. Why do you think that? Well, remember... um, Emerson is reacting to a legacy of Puritanism. And, you know, Puritanism is diminished by the 1830s. There are no more scaffolds or scarlet letters for people out of church. But it left a legacy that emphasized the evil in man. And one of the basic tenets of Christianity practiced in Emerson's world was the idea of total depravity. The idea that mankind is totally depraved with no goodness in him at all. People had been hearing that message all their lives, and it was adopted doctrinally, and in some ways it still is. Uh, None of us need to be told that there is evil in the world or even in ourselves. I mean, it surfaces in obvious and tragic ways. And 
we know this. Uh, Emerson was interested in reminding his listeners that there was also goodness in the world, goodness in them, that if they look for it inside of them, they would find it. Uh, and that's what he's trying to get people to do. Um, this is also a part of Christian theology, by the way. In fact, uh, the creation story of the Bible begins by stating that creation is good and that man is very good, and it's stated seven times. Uh, however, in church world, sometimes that was overshadowed. Well, it's inspiring to think of myself as being capable of good instead of capable of evil. But Emerson's words are bold. He claims by looking inward, all mean egotism vanishes. I mean, the logic being that when we find value in ourselves, we're free to find value in others. It's egalitarian. It led transcendentalists to understand the humanity of indigenous people, of enslaved people, of women, of children. It's what turned a philosophy club into a group of social activists. <laughs> Which is super impressive when you think about that. And, and you know, and that's exactly what happened. Um, if you look at the list of members of the Transcendental Club, what you see is a list of political activists. Uh, Margaret Fuller is quite literally known as America's first feminist. And Thoreau wrote the essay titled Civil Disobedience and inspired Martin Luther King Jr. a hundred years later to lead the civil rights movement. Transcendentalist Elizabeth Peabody pioneered the kindergarten movement in education and then later Native American rights. Um, transcendentalists were anti-war, except for when it came to the Civil War, uh, all of whom were ardent and outspoken advocates for the cause of abolition. Um, these are radical and important causes of that age. And it comes down to internalizing some very basic concepts that we'll hear in this essay, like what is true for me is also true for you. And believing this, not just saying that you believe this and then living as if some people are more equal than others, but absolutely looking in order to find value in your your own humanity, seeing that it's the essence of being human and not comparing yourself and your ability to others. Self-reliance starts with two quotes. One is in Latin, and I don't speak Latin. And I'm I'll glad try. that you're reading it. Nete quasiveris extra, which means do not seek outside yourself. The second quote is from an old tragic comedy play called An Honest Man's Fortune back from the 1600s. Let's read that one. Man is his own star, and the soul that can render an honest and a perfect man commands all light, all influence, all fate. Nothing to him falls early or too late. And off he goes. I mean, this, there's so many quotable lines. And, and perhaps I think that's the best way to read the essay. Just skim it. And when you get to a quote you like, stop. Read that part over and over again. Try to understand it. That's how I encourage my students to read it. I mean, there's stuff in here that you won't like. I'm certainly not enamored with all his talk about not traveling abroad or hear, hear his you know kind of irreverence for sacred text. But we don't have to get bogged down in that kind of stuff. We can read for the lines and ideas that strike a chord in us. Emerson says that every heart vibrates to that iron string. So take his advice when you read his work. I like to ask students to, to find their favorite quotes and post them in a discussion post so we can just talk about their favorite ideas in class. Usually the first quote that surfaces, maybe it's because it's the fourth sentence, but it's this one. To believe your own thought, 
to believe that what is true for you in your private heart is true for all men. That is genius. Speak your latent conviction, and it shall be the universal sense. For the inmost in due time becomes the outmost. He goes on to say this. A man should learn to detect and watch that gleam of light which flashes across his mind from within, more than the luster of the firmament of bards and sages. Yet he dismisses without notice his thought because it's his. In every work of genius, we recognize our own rejected thoughts. They come back to us with a certain alienated majesty. Great works of art have no more affecting lesson for us than this. They teach us to abide by our spontaneous impression with good-humored inflexibility than most when the whole cry of voices is on the other side. Else tomorrow, a stranger will say with masterly good sense precisely what we have thought and felt all the time, and we shall be forced to take with shame our own opinion from another." There is a time in every man's education when he arrives at the conviction that envy is ignorance, that imitation is suicide, that he must take himself, for better or worse, as his portion, that though the wide universe is full of good, no kernel of nourishing corn can come to him but through his toil bestowed on that plot of ground which is given to him to till. <laughs> oh, there's a lot going on in that paragraph that you uh, just know. quoted to us. And, uh, and so much it speaks to our world of uh, filters and videos and Photoshop and social media in general. Um, everything can be fake, but so convincing. Um, first of all, his definition of genius, uh, this is it, to believe your own thoughts. Uh, as most of us know, the word of the year for 2022 was gaslighting. Uh, that's a psychology term that's been around for a long time, but it is now the most popular word in the United States. That word has meant a lot of things to a lot of people, but in essence, um, it's when someone wants to rewrite your experience for you, uh, to tell you that your experience wasn't real, or at least your understanding of it wasn't real. And it happens so often um, you know, I've literally heard students say, I don't know who to believe. I don't feel safe believing anyone. And, and of course, that's true. And words and pictures and videos are all fake, but the images are so aggressive and they're emotional and everything on a screen makes us feel. Uh, but at the same time, but, you know, everything is crafted intentionally to modify our thinking. Um, it's dangerous, but we can't stop watching or listening. And it happens all the time. And we live through something and then someone tells us that the thing we just saw or experienced was not what really happened. They rewrite our memory for us. And something happens in the news and how it's reported. And it's basically a rewriting of the event to be what the reporter or media group wanted that event to be, not what it actually was. And, uh, they do this in order to support one, ide uh, one ideology or, or another. And after a while, we're either really confused or we just accept the narrative someone else is our own. And Emerson is speaking to this. Believe your own thought. He later says that society is in a conspiracy against you. And that's exactly right. It is. He's going to tell us 
that we are too quick to dismiss our own thought and switch to what we are told to think. We doubt even something that we're looking at and that we see. And that is where we get his first big idea. But then he's going to follow that with this second assertion that's even stronger than that. Envy is ignorance. Imitation is suicide. It's the struggle of every teenager on the planet. (laughs) I don't like myself. I like how other people are better. I mean, we've all lived through this. I've lived through this. My story is not an exception. I've shared it before that I grew up in Brazil. Well, in Brazil, I was the only white girl in my community. All my friends had beautiful, dark, golden skin. And I was ashamed of my pale skin and my stringy, flat hair. My best friends had dark, full hair. I was short. They weren't. I wasn't as thin as my friends were. There's so much about myself that I found inadequate. I didn't feel like I lived up to the beauty standards of my community. And as such, I was envious of them. Well, as an adult, I look back on that and I realize that was ignorance. Envy was ignorance. I was ignorant of the range of beauty standards. I should have been celebrating what was different about me and seeing that for the beauty that it was. But that was the farthest thing from what I was wanting to do. What I did was I tried to imitate something that I wasn't. And that's, he calls, suicide. We're killing ourselves. When we imitate others, Emerson says, we kill ourselves. You know, speaking uh, just about beauty standards, uh, Colby Calais wrote a great song about that, that that I believe Emerson would totally approve of. Uh, it's titled Try. It's a great music video as well. And of course, uh, Emerson applies it to way more than how we look. In fact, I'm, I'm not sure beauty standards was even the first thing on his mind. Maybe not. He's a dude. They don't... <laughs> They don't apply to beauty standards. It's a little judgmental on your part. (laughs) Uh, And I want to point out that men have issues with beauty standards, too, you know. But but beauty standards really are just one expression of what we allow ourselves to believe about our own thoughts and ideas. Let me quote him. We but half express ourselves and are ashamed of that divine idea which each of us represents. God will not have his work made manifest by cowards. A man is relieved and gay when he has put his heart into his work and done his best. But what he has done, what he has said or done otherwise, shall give him no peace. It is a deliverance which does not deliver. And this is another idea that is supported by multiple psychological studies. Uh, This idea that fear of failure leads us to a fear of taking responsibility for our own lives. And this kills us. And we don't try because if or when we fail, we can always fall back on the idea, well, I didn't try. I didn't care. I procrastinated. I had adversities others didn't have. You know, that's why I was terrible. Emerson is calling you a coward for that and saying, God will never do anything with your life with that kind of attitude. And not only that, but you won't really find peace. Conventional wisdom suggests we find peace by not failing, um, by finding the easy way. So the best way to not fail is to not try. And that's always the easy way. But Emerson says this, this is a deliverance which does not deliver. He is not a fan Trust thyself. Every heart vibrates to that iron string. 
And so we have this idea. It comes down to this. Listen to ourselves. Like ourselves for who we are, how we look, how we think. For better or worse, it's still us. It's who we are. And we should trust that. Expecting society to to try to work against us all the time. When he says society everywhere is in conspiracy against the manhood of every one of its members, this is not just gendered language talking about males. He means society really doesn't like you. Everyone. This comment by Emerson in my last class really sparked a discussion because my students asked this question. Does Emerson not like community? Don't we need community? And of course, he does believe in community, but community consists of our friends, the people that are around us and have our best interests in mind. That's not society. True. And um, our very good friend Paul Dooley calls those people hallway people. <laughs> you know, back in the day, Paul Dooley taught freshmen at Bolton High School. And Freshmen came in with their big eyes and they're impressionable and they're wanting to be popular and, you know, they're scared of high school in general. And their English teacher, Paul Dooley, would tell them this. Remember, the people in the hallway are not your friends. <laughs> and he was right. Hallway people are the ones that are going to get you in trouble. <laughs> their <and> society. <laughs> their society. But, of course, Emerson takes it a, a step farther because he claims that the hallway people of the world or society at large parade around pretending that they are on our side. Lots of times they pretend to be a bunch of moralizing do-gooders, but they're not. They're selfish and they're mean. They use our desire to be good people as a weapon against us to make us conform and submit to their will. He says a lot and he explains this quite a bit, but here's one quote. If malice and vanity wear the coat of philanthropy, shall that pass? You know, I really like that metaphor, the coat of philanthropy. Philanthropy, that's a big word, but it means good causes. If you donate to St. Jude, that's the hospital here in Memphis, that's philanthropy. But what Emerson is saying, that people hide their vanity and malice behind the cloak of philanthropy. They have malice. They have a bad intent. They're vain. They think about themselves. And he's going to say, don't pay attention to these people or what they say. They are publicly claiming to support causes, good causes. But look at their lives. Look how they treat people in their family, in their community, the people that work with them or for them. He puts it this way. If an angry bigot assumes this bountiful cause of abolition and comes to me with his latest news from Barbados, why should I not say to him, Go, love thy infant, love thy woodchopper, be good-natured and modest, have that grace, and never varnish your hard, uncharitable ambition with this incredible tenderness for black folk a thousand miles off. Thy love afar is spite." at home that is a deep statement <laughs> it's harsh worthy yeah it is it is harsh language and of course you must understand that abolition was a very popular cause in new england and no one in his audience would claim to be a supporter of slavery and emerson himself was an ardent supporter of abolition his point is uh what's the point of claiming all this righteousness for causes publicly when you are a terrible human on the individual <laughs> level 
Uh, you name call, you judge, you look down on others around you. Love the woodchopper. Love the person that is invisible to you. Public causes me nothing, especially when they are popular. And he is really going against the grain with that. I mean, he causes kind of living nonconformity, and he comes back to it over and over again in this essay. Insist on yourself. Never imitate all the while claiming that living like this won't be well received. <laughs> for one thing, most people live their lives for the mob. We don't live for ourselves. We live for the mob, he says. But my life is for itself and not for a spectacle. You know, a spectacle is something we watch. Our accomplishments, are they to impress other people? He argues that even our good works are often just a way to impress people. It's a trap that makes everything we do in our lives not for ourselves, but for others to create a spectacle, something to see. And I believe that's one of the the core central messages he's trying to say, disconnect from all of that (laughs) and look to yourself. And I would say Emerson would not approve of uh, social media because it's all spectacle. I mean, it makes everyone's lives spectacles. And um, our daughter-in-law told me she got off Instagram because looking at other people's lives was making her feel bad about her own. And it does that for a lot of people. But beyond just that... How many of us have seen others or been guilty of missing a moment because we were taking a picture of the moment? Or even worse, did something only because we could post about it later on? So. Well, all of us, of course, if we're being honest, but some are worse than others. He would have zero use for that professional class of people we call influencers. I mean, it's uncanny to me how much of this is of this essay really is about social media. Most of the influencers are saying the exact same thing as each other. They all support the exact same causes. They view the world the exact same way. The competition is just to get the most attention. He anticipates this. He says this, if I know your sect, I anticipate your argument. Meaning if I know what social group you belong to, I will know exactly what you believe about everything in the world. Even preachers are not free to think independently. Quote, I hear a preacher announce for his text the topic, the expediency of the one of the institutions of the church. Do I I not know beforehand that not possibly can he say a new and spontaneous word? Uh, True. And, you know, this is a problem with modern life. Uh, Today, uh, preachers are not the influences of our day like they were in his day. They don't have that kind of voice in society like they did in those days. And that role has been taken over by uh, sports icons and celebrities and musicians and actors. I mean, these are the people that society elevates. And he's going to claim, uh, as we can clearly see, that influencers have identical opinions for a reason. They must have identical opinions or they will lose their platform. And he says this, for nonconformity, the world whips you with its displeasure. <laughs> is that not true? Uh, don't think that cancel culture is a modern concept. I mean, he's speaking to it as a problem in 1841. And he says, if you dare to challenge the opinion of the cool kids in your community, you will brook the rage of the cultivated classes. And he says this, their rage is decorous and prudent, for they are timid as being very vulnerable themselves. That is a genius-level insight. Well, he says they will go off in a feminine rage, which I take offense to that expression. (laughs) 
but he means that people strike hard. They lash out cruelly. They name call. They degrade. But all the time, they're covered by a cloak of philanthropy. And so the first large chunk in the very end of this essay speaks to this, this idea of valuing your own opinions and trusting that, and then having the strength to withstand the peer pressure, that moral majority that's being, being willing to take the heat. He says that's the definition of being a nonconformist. The second chunk of this essay is going to address a second concept, and it's different, but he considers it just as crucial as being nonconformist if you want to be a person that's self-reliant. And this is the danger of what he calls consistency. Again, this is a paradox. We don't like people that are inconsistent. Inconsistency isn't a good thing. If you're inconsistent, I can't count on you. I can't trust you. But that's not how he defines consistency. He qualifies it. And this possibly is one of the most famous lines in the American canon. Gary, will you read this most famous line? Everyone loves it. Not only is it famous, it's maybe your favorite. It's, it's, I love it. <laughs> he says this. A foolish consistency is the hobgoblin of little minds adored by little statesmen and philosophers and divines. With consistency, a great soul has simply nothing to do. He may as well concern himself with his shadow on the wall. Speak what you think now in hard words, and tomorrow speak what tomorrow thinks in hard words again. Though it contradict everything you said today, ah, so you shall be misunderstood? Is it so bad then to be misunderstood? Pythagoras was misunderstood, and Socrates, and Jesus, and Luther— and Copernicus, and Galileo, and Newton, and every pure and wise spirit that ever took flesh. To be great is to be misunderstood. So there you have it. To be great is to be misunderstood. I'm not going to claim to be great for sure, but I will absolutely attest to the fact, and I've lived on this earth long enough to know that there are times that you are going to have to walk things back change courses, make decisions that aren't popular, that people won't understand. And when you do that, you will be misunderstood and you have to be willing to go that route. And it is not fun. And if I can go back to my historical crush for a second, Abraham Lincoln did this exactly. Okay. Uh, and, you know, to stay course on the course in a, in a bad decision because you made it has an economic term. That's called sunken cost error. Uh, you know, I'm going to wear this terrible looking outfit because I already paid for it, you know, or I'm going to eat terrible food because I ordered it. I'm going to stick with a bad decision because I'm afraid to walk it back. And that's what he calls a foolish consistency. I'm going to stick to a certain belief because I made such a big fuss about it, even though I don't even really believe it anymore. You know, uh, I think I know what a hobgoblin is. It's like a, isn't it like a gnome and a ghost and a bad spirit? <laughs> yes. I mean, hobgoblins, you know, they show up in comic books. The most famous hobgoblin is from the Marvel Universe, Ned Leeds, Peter Parker's co-worker in Spider-Man. But hobgoblins are different from regular goblins because there is this element of deception that's associated with hobgoblins. In this case, the idea being that little minds, you know, they have these little hobgoblins inside of them and they're creating chaos and mischief in life. 
The hobgoblin of always believing you can't change your mind forces you to be closed-minded. It keeps you from entertaining new ideas, accepting new evidence. It keeps you from talking to people that are different from you. In a sense, it turns you into this mythological, ugly, self-deceiving fool. It's a great metaphor. Be willing to grow. Have the courage to walk things back. Be brave enough to consider the thinking of someone that you might even not even like. He makes another famous metaphor to explain what he means a couple of paragraphs later. He says, The voyage of the best ship is a zigzag line of a hundred tacks. What's he mean by that? The best life will never be lived in a straight line. There's going to be zigs and zags in it. There must, if you're going to have genuine action, genuine movement, genuine forward progress on your own personal journey on this earth. You know, being original is so important to Emerson's definition of what it means to have a good life. It is his definition. His whole essay uh, can be reduced to the need and challenges of being brave. And he says this, I will stand here for humanity, and though I would make it kind, I would make it true. You know, in other words, uh, kindness is not the most important thing. I mean, it's good to be kind, but it not must not be sacrificed uh, on the altar of truth. And, you know, how do we know what is true? For Emerson, it's not through examining data. It is not in reading books, although he clearly read thousands. I mean, it's not in our community or from experts in their fields. It's by looking inside ourselves. And that's what he calls intuition. He calls it living truly. And he says he cannot be happy or we cannot be happy if uh, we do not live truly. And living truly means doing stuff, not owning stuff. Truly living means making one's own choices and feeling the freedom to live with them. Life only avails not to have lived. That's him talking. Power ceases in the instead of repose. It resides in the moment of transition from a past to a new state, in the shooting of the gulf, and the darting to an aim. In other words, do something. If it's a bad idea, change courses. Do what you want to do, but move. And movement looks so different from person to person. For Emily Dickinson... It ultimately meant never leaving her room. She wanted the freedom that that room provided, the freedom to write the way she wanted to write, to to be a writer and not aligned to the prescribed standards of her day. Let me quote him again. I must be myself. I cannot break myself any longer for you. If you can love me for what I am, we shall be happier. If you cannot, I will still seek to deserve that you should. I will not hide my taste or aversions. I will sow truth that what is deep is holy, that I will do strongly before the sun and moon whatever rejoices me in the heart of points. If you're noble, I will love you. If you're not, I will not hurt you and myself by hypocritical attentions. If you are true but not in the same truth with me, cleave to your companions and I will seek my own. I do this not selfishly but humbly and truly." He goes on to say that the populace think that your rejection of popular standards is a rejection of all standards. But he's going to argue against that, and he's going to say the law of consciousness abides. We are afraid of truth and afraid of fortune and afraid of death and afraid of each other. 
You know, when you read it that way, it sounds a, a little cliche. Do you think it is? <laughs> well, you know, it may seem cliche because it's so deeply woven into the American consciousness and American ethos. And, you know, that we've heard it a lot, a lot of this in many other contexts, but especially in American schools. And many uh, Americans after Emerson read these ideas and they believed these ideas and they lived out these ideas. And uh, this idea of being true to your ideals and being brave against the current uh, those are things that we teach students. There are also the themes in so many movies, and we don't have time to hit every piece of advice that he gives. Uh, but in in essence of living with integrity in the face of corruption comes out of this. And he even says, don't look to rely on your property for your confidence. And that includes reliance on government. Uh, and it's what we've always admired in leaders like uh, Teddy Roosevelt and uh, Clara Barton or, or Sojourner Truth. And he, he takes it to its farthest point by insisting that as life gets easier, we are tempted to settle for the easy way. And let me quote him. If our young men miscarry in their first enterprises, they lose heart. If the young merchant fails, men say he is ruined. If the first genius studies at one of our colleges and is not installed in an office within one year afterwards in the cities or suburb of Boston or New York, it seems to his friends that he has a right to be disheartened and in complaining the rest of his life. <laughs> He's talking about people with low stamina. He is. Uh, and, and that's a lesson that, that we try to teach in schools, this idea of never giving up in spite of failure. Uh, adversity of individual or group challenges. And most school kids are taught the story of Thomas Edison and the, the many attempts to invent the light bulb. And we teach about Michael Jordan and his insistence on playing basketball after being cut from his junior high team. And we admire J.K. Rowling and her writing in the coffee shops until she produced great works. And Emerson made self-reliance into a virtue that we have admired for many years in this country as well as others. And Emerson preaches that a life of self-reliance is a life well lived, no matter the success or failure externally, because you will feel successful internally. Well, you know, a lot of happened to Emerson after he wrote that essay and made him question a few of those claims. You know, his son died and this was devastating. And there were other things in his life. And, and he softened his views over the years a little bit. Uh, but, you know, we talked about one of his last essays, How Shall I Live? He wrote hundreds, thousands of pages trying to answer that question, but he really never wavered from the last line of this essay, Self-Reliance. And I will finish by reading this last line. Nothing can bring you peace but yourself. Nothing can bring you peace but the triumph of principles. Well, on that note, I mean, that is a lot to meditate on, really. And we are living in a world so completely dominated by spectacle. And we argue in voices heard around the world about who is at fault or who is good and who is evil. And, you know, I have decided Emerson um, would have a social media presence, but I would be interested to know what he would do with it. I mean, his message is certainly to the world, to the world, but it is a message for everyone to stop looking at it. I mean, look inside you. Go outside in nature. Leave all society behind you, your phone, your friends, your community, uh, even your education. Look inward for your principles and follow them, even if they change over time. And stand up against the mob.
not with one mob against another one, but stand up against your own mob, against the hobgoblins that pester in your own mind, however painful others may make it for you at the moment. Think for yourself. Emerson says it's how we find our peace. And for him, self-reliance is the pathway to peace. Well, Christy, this might uh, be the most philosophical podcast we have ever done. I feel a little exhausted. I know. We'll lighten up. Summer's coming, so come back. (laughs) We won't always be this heavy. (laughs) That's true. Anyway, thank you for listening. Uh, We've tried to break down the transcendental ideas of Ralph Waldo Emerson, and we do hope we gave you something to think about. If so, reach out to us on our social media, our Instagram, Facebook, LinkedIn, YouTube. Uh, Please share the link from this episode on your social media. Text it to a friend who needs his or her (laughs) self-reliance. Play it for a class of students, however you share things. It's how we grow. So we thank you for contributing in that way. Peace out.